0: Well, good morning again. As I was was considering the text to use this week, I was motivated by Pastor Luke's sermon last week. And I know not everyone was here, and I know the sermon speaks for itself, but let me share one of the things that I took away from that sermon, and so maybe you can see the connection Uh, he preached on the reality that we as human beings often settle for second best when it comes to seeking glory. He talked about how the world offers up to us so many different paths to success and satisfaction that when we achieve them, temporary as they might be, we think we've made it and yet we ignore the reality that there is a glory out there available to us because of what God has done that is really what this is all about, that eternal kind of glory. Said in a little bit different way, when we define our objectives according to the temporary successes that the world can offer to the exclusion of those eternal successes that are possible by God, we by definition shut the door on the glory God intends for us. Even though we may achieve second best and because we've lowered our expectations, we can actually go through life many times thinking that we have a great life. It's kind of like when I was taking a test in college, I can remember doing this often, as I would leave the test, I would tell myself how poorly I must have done, certainly not better than a C plus, And then when the B minus came back, I was happy because I had lowered my expectations and felt like I had succeeded, ignoring all along that there were A's and A pluses out there to be had. And I got one or two of them as well. So I decided this week though, thinking back to what Pastor Luke preached on, that I would go to the Bible and look for a biblical example of where this had actually happened. And I came up with our text. Now, that's just the continuation of the passage that Bryce read for us in Luke, in John, John 6, 22 through 40. It's the first part of what is referred to in the literature as the discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. The story, of course, comes on the heels of, of one of the places, there are several of them, in the Bible where Jesus feeds many people with just a small amount of food. A few verses earlier uh, that Bryce wrote, uh, read is the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Now the crowd, to set the stage, has just witnessed this miracle of multiplication of fish and loaves, and they've followed Jesus, expecting more of the same. And Jesus, in what comes after, challenges every aspect of what the people are wanting and doing, and introduces the idea that there's something far greater in life than what this world has to offer. There's the connection to last week's sermon. And so, in this passage, we'll see, I hope, an example of exactly what Pastor Luke was talking about, our willingness to live as if worldly success is enough. Our passage, as I said, is John 6, through 40. Before I read it, would you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Father, would you continue to reveal yourself through this passage. Show us where we sometimes are willing to settle for second best, and as we do that, Father, we do not see the glory that you have made possible. Enlighten us. Show us where we need to change. Show us how our attitude about the future can inform our daily living. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here's the passage. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus today wants to take our understanding of what he was offering to a new level. He wants us to be unwilling to settle for second best. Now, I imagine that we we are quite willing intellectually to go where Jesus wants to take us. We embrace it. We know the ultimate questions of life. We crave eternal significance. We know that God offers it to us. But do we reflect this, do you and I reflect this in the way that we live our daily lives? If you, like me, fall short here, Jesus suggests to us in today's passage that there are reasons for this. Specifically, and you'll see this in the outline that I have on the back of the bulletin. I think he gives us four things at least that we should consider if we really want to reflect the eternal truth of the gospel in the way that we live out our daily lives. And if we if we may find it, if we find it hard to do this, Jesus is telling us today that we may have, first of all, wrong motives. We may be using or understanding the wrong method. We may be looking at the wrong sign and we may be worried about the wrong thing, have the wrong fear. And those are the four things I think he wants us to think about. Are we wrongly motivated? Are we pursuing the wrong method? Are we looking at the wrong sign? And are we fearing the wrong thing? First, wrong motives. The people were confused. They had seen the disciples leave for Capernaum in the one boat available to them and Jesus was not with them and yet he was nowhere to be found. They wanted to go to him because after all, think about it, this was the guy who had made a feast out of five loaves of bread and two fish that fed at least 5,000 people. When several new boats arrived, some in the crowd had the means to cross the lake to Capernaum to find Jesus, and in fact, they did it, and he was there. How could this have happened? Now here, in the question that the people asked Jesus, and in Jesus' response, we see what was in their hearts, what was their motivation in pursuing this guy. Here's the question in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now that's a pretty logistical, kind of simple, factual question. Could have been just an innocent curiosity, not really a confusion that showed that they didn't understand what Jesus was all about, except look at Jesus' response as he identifies what's really going on in their hearts. Verses 26 and 27, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are not seeking me. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which God, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. You see, the crowd's problem was not just that they were looking at this magician who could turn a little bit of food into a lot, waiting for the next miracle to be done. Their problem was more basic, and I think it's one to which we can relate. Yes, they wanted food in their bellies, but they were wrongly motivated. They were trying to find him in order that their daily food need would be met. And that's our problem as well often we focus on basic daily human needs and never give ourselves the opportunity to open up our eyes and look at things eternal well the good news is that we live in a time when we have a lot of opportunity to do that as we sit back and think about the eternal aspects of our relationship with god and yet just as in jesus's day we pretty much live day to day worried about where the next meal's coming from in our own way. Spiritual blindness, you see, comes from a conscious decision to close our spiritual eyes. We're unwilling to open ourselves up to the possibility of what God might be wanting to do in our lives. Paul said that we should have been able to see God even in nature, as we look around and contemplate how this could be here, the creation that we inhabit. So why do you listen when the word of God is being preached? What is your motivation? Make sure you aren't here just to satisfy a temporary need, uh, a desire for fellowship with other believers, someone to tell you how to live your life better. Instead, focus on the eternal truths that God has for us. Make sure that we are not wrongly motivated. Now, once we are rightly motivated, and we really want to know about this eternal relationship with God, how do we do it? The crowd here wonders that, and and we'll see that, when they ask their question, um, I want to have eternal truths inform the way I live my daily life, how do I do this? They don't exactly say it that way, but that's, I think, what they meant. Let's turn to the second point, the wrong method. Jesus uses the word labor when he addresses the people. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. This leads to the question that the people ask in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God. You've told me something that I really want, I'll have some, how do I do this work? Now the people wanted to work for the food that endures to eternal life. We've gotten over that first hurdle. I think this is true for almost anybody that has ever lived, no matter what they tell you. They may not articulate their feelings uh, as an educated, believing Christian with an understanding of basic doctrines would, But all of us crave significance. We want to know why we are here. If we have any idea that there is a God out there, we want to know how to relate to that God. Very few people would say that they don't want to know about that having first acknowledged that there is a God there. The problem is in the butchered words of the song, we may be looking for God in all the wrong places. That's what Jesus now deals with. What is the work that God requires? What's the key? Jesus answers them in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now, this was, of course, a reference to himself. Understand here the question that the people were asking. They said, What work do we need to be doing? But really, they're asking the same question that you've asked, that I've asked, and I think everybody asks How do I have eternal life? How do I achieve a significance that goes beyond the successes that the world offers me. How do I do that? In other words, we're not just talking now in this conversation about how to have a better life, how to uh, honor your spouse or raise your kids the right way or eat your food at a certain time and with certain sacrifices. These were all the law that the people were dealing with. You might misinterpret the dialogue between Jesus and the people as an argument over what the law says. In fact, here we're talking gospel. Jesus is going to say, here's what it takes to be eternally with your God, ignoring all the things that happen in the world. And the answer is that there's only one thing you have to do. The one work is to believe in Jesus. Now, even that phrase, is fraught with, uh, with pitfalls, and we have to tear it, tear it apart a little bit. First, let's define belief. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it, it's expressed many ways, but basically it is a belief that you and I have fallen short of the righteousness that God intends for us. That Jesus, who was God, went to the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and that his righteousness is therefore imputed to me and to you, as I believe, so that I can live eternally as God originally intended. Sounds like work. At least the belief part sounds like work. What are we talking about? And it's a hard thing for we humans to understand for a couple of reasons. For one thing, the world teaches us that to find success, what do we have to do? We work hard. And so, working doesn't sound like something that is a free gift or an expression of grace that comes from God. (laughs) I can even create my own righteousness. That's what Paul talks about in Romans, when he said that the Jews created their own righteousness when they focused on the law. They said, this is what you can do, and then they proceeded to live as if it was possible to be righteous because of your own efforts. And we even have to turn, we have to be careful not to turn the gifts of grace that God has given us into work, things like baptism or communion, things that God has given to us as what we call means of grace, are not things we have to do to prove to God that we are worthy of salvation. No, they are things, gifts given to us to show us that we have been saved. Many don't understand the difference between salvation and sanctification. This is something that I have trouble with. Salvation, meaning that eternal existence with God as we are saved, sanctification being that gradual process that we go through as we become more and more holy, more and more righteous, literally, as we live our lives. Never truly, completely righteous and without sin, but more and more righteous as we learn how God wants us to live our lives. The work of God that Jesus is referring to is faith in Jesus Christ. There's even an interesting aspect of how Jesus aspects, how Jesus answers this question, as he says, the work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent. It's true that we're talking about belief, this is what we have to have, but when he says it is the work of God, that is true in a profound way in that God is who gives you the faith. It is God's work that we have. That's why every week we talk about what we believe as Christians. And the way we look at that is not that our faith is proof to God that we are worthy of being saved. It's proof to you and me that we have been saved because if we hadn't been saved, we would never believe in in Jesus. I would never choose God except for the work that God has done in my life. So the question for us today is what do you believe? And why do you think you believe it? Do you accept the reality of your separation from God? Do you understand that He, without looking at anything you or I have done, sent His Son to die on the cross, that we might have that righteousness that is acceptable to Him? That's the right work the right method. Jesus then goes on and talks about a sign, our third point. We've addressed our motivation. We now understand the method God uses to save us. The people now ask him for a sign. They wanted proof. Proof that Jesus was the one in whom they should believe. They've accepted the reality of how God gets us into this eternal relationship, but how do we know Jesus? that you're the one. All you've done is changed a few pieces of fish and bread into a larger quantity, probably some kind of hocus pocus that, uh, that, that isn't, as we think about it, enough to tell us that you are who you claim to be. Here's what they said, verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now we start bringing it home as Jesus is confronting the people, just as you and I, as we figuratively think about that cross, we show it in symbols, but the reality of the cross, that's something that confronts you right in your face. You have to respond. You can't say, maybe. You have to say yes or no to that. And that's what, the, that's what Jesus is going to say to them here. Now, the people were remembering a sign that had been given to Moses and the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. You'll, you'll remember the story of the manna that came from heaven so that they would have something to eat. Jesus uses that to explain the sign that is staring these people and you and me right in the face. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. That's what the people were wanting to believe. One day it was Moses bringing the bread down from heaven. And the next day it's Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes. So how is it that you're different than Moses? They might have asked. The problem was that manna was not a sign that should lead to trust in Moses or the system that he represented. Manna was a sign that they should trust in God who had sent it, just as Jesus was the reality of the sign that God was sending them at that time. Because you see, no man, no human being can give you the eternal life that you want except the man God, Jesus Christ. You look to a sign like multiplication of fish and bread, but the true sign that is evidence of the truth of what Jesus was saying was Jesus himself. Miracles are important and miracles are real and we worship a God who can do miracles and if I have a problem in my life, I pray for a miracle. I think God will do that sometimes, but it is not the eternally significant act that he does. It is more a sign of what he is capable of and has done. And Jesus said, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, they're looking for a miracle from this guy, whether it comes from God or not, because ultimately what they're worried about, back to the motivation question, is their day in, day out, Livelihood. How are they going to feed themselves? Jesus goes on and says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He was worried, Jesus was, that they weren't even looking at the amazing thing that he had done for the right reason. They would have been just as intent to find Jesus If he had been the head of, uh, you know, something like the Jewish Welfare Agency and was passing out normal food to people, they're just looking for the next spot along the road where he's going to be. He wanted them to go, though, beyond the miracle to its significance. And that significance is no one except Jesus makes eternal life possible. There is no sign that they did not already have. It had been foretold that he would come into this world. He was there. He had not yet gone to the cross, but he was in the process of working his way to that key historical event. Jesus is the only miracle that lasts forever. Well, that's the third point. The fourth uh, is the scariest for the believing Christian, I think. I live as if my life will last forever, but it won't, I know, probably except for the work of Jesus in my life, I do not look forward to an eternity with God. And I fear something, even being a believing Christian, that I want to move on as our last point. Having the relationship, being rightly motivated, understanding the method, how God did it, um, I, I nonetheless, Fear that I might lose what God has given to me." And that's what the crowd was feeling at the same way. Let's see what they do. The crowd, they didn't get it. They still wanted bread. They thought that Jesus was the one who would give it to them. These were not people at the moment who believed, I think. Jesus then teaches them using different points. He's now explained to them the method. He's, he addresses their motivations. And he says, I am the bread that is eternal. Don't worry about that temporary stuff. Going hungry is not as bad as being dead eternally. And the people say in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. They're worried that he's promised them something that he can take back. They didn't always, or didn't exactly express their fear this way. They really were worried about the bread, but I think we can broaden their concern because Jesus seems to do that as well. Do you as Christians ever, because of circumstances that you're facing, believe that your connection to God is somehow waning, that it's no longer as strong, maybe even that it might go away? Well, Jesus addresses that concern after being asked by the people to give the bread always. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him at the last day." Jesus is saying a couple of things. He's saying, first of all, their true need is spiritual, not the hunger in their belly. Secondly, Jesus is the only way to satisfy that need. He's the only thing that's available to them or to you and to me. Thirdly, the sign, the proof, that this is true was that he was there. Just as when we read scripture, or when we fellowship together, or find community in a church like this, a believing church, we have Jesus in front of us. We can negotiate with God and say, God, give us another miracle, give us a sign. I'm having real trouble in this regard, and if you'll just solve this problem for me, I will believe. That's not the message of Jesus. Problems will come, and they will go. But Jesus is in front of you right now. We're speaking of what we refer to as the perseverance of the saints or eternal security, as whether or not it's possible for us to be lost by God once he has found us. And what Jesus is teaching is that he will never let go of you. So as that relationship seems to wane and seems to become more vague, it's because we're pulling away. We're not living our day-to-day life in the knowledge that eternity with God transcends any kind of a difficulty that we may be facing. So the, the true fear of the people that they might lose the bread Jesus was offering them was the wrong fear. They were fearing the wrong thing. The true fear that they needed a relationship with God that was only available through a relationship with the one who was standing in front of me leads to the fact that faith in Jesus Christ gives satisfaction and security. The title of my sermon was Jesus is the source of eternal satisfaction. I'm not talking intellectually or theologically about that even though it's true. I'm talking about how we live our lives day in, day out. Faith in Jesus Christ gives satisfaction and security even as you face whatever you're facing today. So in what areas of your life do you need more encouragement or peace? Turn to the the eternal reality of who Jesus is to find it. So we can have perfect satisfaction about our eternity that really should affect the way we live our daily lives. How then shall we live Problems do come and go. Physical death awaits, probably. But we can get on with our lives with an attitude that is positive, knowing how the story turns out. Living with wrong motivations, misunderstanding the method God uses to save us, looking for the wrong sign that God has done this work in our lives, or fearing that the eternal salvation God makes possible will somehow be taken away, these are all things that change the way we live, our very approach to life when we get up, we get up in the morning. So, what are you primarily worried about? Is it the short term, the worldly trials, the challenges that you face? Are you concerned about your eternity? Either way, are you at a point in your life, as am I, where we crave peace and satisfaction? Jesus offers you a way to have real peace, real satisfaction, yes, eternally, theologically, intellectually, as you consider this, but also in the way you live your daily life. He asks that you trust him. Trust him to define the struggle for you and then trust him to deal with the things that he knows are most important. Let's pray. Father, we are human. And you've put us here, and you are mysterious, and we can't claim to know the wisdom and the, or the truth, even, that you and Jesus have explained to us in this passage. And yet we are your children, and we want peace and satisfaction. I pray that problems would be solved. Give us strength, and perseverance, and wisdom, and help us when we need your help as well. But ultimately, Father, give us perspective to know that the eternal trumps the short term. Help us to understand that, Father, that it would even inform and affect the way we live every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.